G'day everyone. Hello. Hello. It's always wonderful to have a baptism because at a baptism we're remembering the promises of God, remembering what Jesus has done for us. It helps when the baby being baptised is cute as Harley, so it uh, makes it even more joyful. But uh, as Natani just mentioned, we're doing something a bit unusual over the next three weeks, a bit different to what we normally do. Normally we just preach through a book of the Bible. Uh, but last week we got to the end of John's Gospel. Uh, we got the last resurrection appearance of Jesus. Uh, in three weeks' time, we're going to look at another book of the Bible. We're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to think about the promises of God there. Uh, but just for three weeks, we're doing, uh, thinking about a topic. And we think about the question of uh, how you think what you think and why you think what you think. Uh, we often talk about uh, your worldview. Uh, why do I believe what I believe? Uh, that's what we're thinking about over the next three weeks. So you will need your Bibles, uh, but most, God willing and technology willing, most of the Bible verses will come up on the screen. Uh, but the most helpful thing you'll have is uh, the outline, because that's where I've got a list of all the different things we're talking about. So if you, don't, if you didn't get one of those on the way, way in, put your hand up now, and one of our lovely people at the back will get one to you. There's a person down at the front, a couple of people at the front. They just wanted to make you work, Brendan, so there you go. Uh, keep your hand in the air if uh, you need one of those. But I want to start by asking a question, and that is, how do you decide what you think about anything? So just think about that for a minute. How do you decide what you think about anything? I don't mean how do you decide what you wear in the morning. I don't mean how do you decide what you're going to have to eat after church tonight. Uh, I mean moral issues. I mean uh, ethical issues. Whether it's uh, the small personal decisions on how you live or whether it's what you think about the things that are up for debate in society. Uh, and it seems to me anyway, at least in Australia in recent times, Ethical issues, moral issues are more up for debate than they've ever been in my lifetime. Just, just every year we're, we're debating it, whether it was same-sex marriage or abortion uh, over the last few weeks in New South Wales. Uh, there's just ethical and moral issues are just on the public agenda. Uh, and how do you decide what you think about them? How do you decide what is right and wrong? How do you decide your opinion on those things? Now, as Christians who love Jesus and want to live for him, that's, that's what I'm asking you. As a Christian... How do you decide what you think? If you're with us tonight and you're not a Christian, it's great you're here. It's wonderful. Uh, and, but you might think differently. But I'm hoping you'll be intrigued by what I have to say about how Christians think about these things. So I'm asking you, if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you decide what you think on those things? And surely, as I've asked you that question, surely lots of you have thought, this is going to be a really short sermon because the answer is anything great because the answer is really obvious. It's really obvious how I decide God's word is the final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. So, so as a Christian, we can sit down now, can't we? Phil, get off and let's have another baptism or something, you, you know. So for someone who trusts in Jesus, I hope you say, I decide what is right and wrong on the basis of God's word. I, I decide my opinions on the basis of the Bible. Is that your answer? Three people in the building it is. No. Is that your answer? I, ho I hope so. I hope that's what you think. I think every Christian agrees that is their theoretical answer. Every Christian agrees that, that yes, that is my answer in a vacuum. Because that's what it is to be a Christian. A Christian's worldview, that's what we call it, our worldview is set by God's word. Now, that's great in theory, but then there's reality. 
And the reality is, all too often, we are driven not by our brain, but by our heart. And if you buy our, what we, we sort of think of as our gut feel, that's the Australian way of, of, of talking about it, we, we can know something intellectually, we can absolutely believe it, but then doesn't feel right, and if that's the case, we struggle with it. Even though intellectually we know it up here, if it doesn't feel right, we struggle to live by it, we struggle to accept it. Our gut feel is a really powerful thing. It's hard to go against how you feel about something. And that is especially the case more than at any point in history in the Western world today. Because the modern Western world tells you how you feel is the most important thing. The most important thing in our world is be true to yourself. Follow your heart. The most important thing to think about in any decision in our modern world is how do I feel about that? Does it feel right? Because if it feels right, how could it be wrong? And Disney told us this 60 years ago, didn't they? You know, just let your conscience be your guide. That's, that's the guide for living. Let that little voice in your head, whether you call it your conscience, whether you call it your heart, whether you call it your gut, let that be your guide. Follow that and everything will be all right. Or to put it the Australian way, just follow your gut. But that's where we really hit a problem as Christians, isn't it? Because often when we come across the big issues, when we listen to God's word, it makes our gut feel really, really uncomfortable. And that is especially the case if you have become a Christian any time in Australia in the last 20 years, which is probably the majority of people in this room. See, when I became a Christian 26 years ago, Australia was on the cusp of something. But when I became a Christian, Australian society largely had a Christian worldview. That didn't mean there were more Christians 26 years ago. I think it's exactly the same number of Christians then as now. But our society was largely based on a Christian worldview. So when I became a Christian, there were lots of things personally I had to change. But my understanding on those big social, moral, ethical issues was basically based on the Bible. Because our laws at that time were basically based on the Bible. And what you got taught in primary school and high school was largely based on the Bible. And there weren't people trying to say, no, there's a different way on these issues. Now, that didn't mean people lived by those morals. But people were no better a thousand years ago, 50 years ago, or 50 years ago. People are sinful. We human beings are just as sinful then as we were today, as we are today. But what was considered right or wrong was largely guided by a biblical worldview. But over the last few years, I don't think you need me to tell you this, over the last few years, that, that has changed drastically. Possibly the quickest social change that has ever happened in the history of humanity has happened in the last 25 or 30 years. So now on so many social issues, what is taught as accepted truth, accepted reality in our schools, in the media, or whoever it is sets the agenda, is not just moved away from a Christian worldview, it's diametrically opposed to a Christian worldview. So that disjunct between our gut and then what we hear from the Bible, it's always been there. You see, the Apostle Paul in our New Testament reading from tonight talked about how the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks of his days and a stumbling block to the Jews. It was there 2000 years. Nothing's different in that sense. But it's only getting bigger for people like us who are Christians in this modern world. 
Because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, through every form of media, we're drip-fed the world's view as normal. And the world's view is drifting further and further away from a biblical worldview. Now, just to show this in practice, I'll ask you a question. Please do not give me a show of, of hands here. My pride is very easily fragile, you know. Uh, I want to ask you, though, and my teenage children, please don't answer this question. How often do you get embarrassed by me on a Sunday night? No show of hands, but just in the quietness of your heart. How, how often do you get embarrassed by me on a Sunday night? I don't mean by my dress sense. I don't mean by my sense of humour. Uh, I mean, when I open up the Bible and I teach it, and I speak on one of those controversial issues, or perhaps when I use one of those controversial issues as an example and talk about what the Bible has to say on it, how often do you just sort of think, or, or perhaps even say, why can't Phil just leave that alone? Why can't he talk about less controversial things, things where we agree with the world? Even though intellectually, in your brain, you know it's coming from God's Word and it's true, our gut reacts against it. Our heart reacts against it. So for example, earlier in the year, we were going through John's gospel. Earlier in the year, we came across John 14 verse 6, where Jesus says very, very clearly, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so you look at that verse and you're left with no other option but to say, there is no other way to God other than Jesus. The only way for a human being to find salvation, to come to know God, is through Jesus Christ. And that means Islam is false. That means Buddhism is false. That means secular humanistic philosophies are false. And do you sometimes find yourself saying, perhaps early in the year when we preached on that verse, do you sometimes find yourself saying, I know that is right up here. Because I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible is God's word. And it can't be wrong, but gee, I struggle with it down here. See, I struggle with it down here. It doesn't feel right because the minute I go out of church and I turn on the radio or I get on my Facebook feed or whatever it is I do, the world tells me that's too arrogant. The world tells me that can't be true. My gut feel is it just seems too exclusive. Or when we come to a passage on human sexuality and we hear the Bible teach sexual activity is only for within a marriage between one man and one woman. That all sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage is sin and brings God's judgment. Now, when we hear that, do you sometimes find yourself saying, I know that's right here because God's word says it and I believe God's word, but gee, I struggle with it here. It just seems too exclusive. It just doesn't feel right. My, my gut feel is uncomfortable with that. Now, over the next two weeks, I'm going to deal with some of those specific areas where the, where the Bible and the world are, are at crossroads, if you like. Uh, and we're going to think about some of those specific areas and so forth. But tonight, I want to focus just on this issue. Why does our gut feel so often react against God's Word? That's the question I want us to think about tonight. And it then, is that okay when that happens? So as a Christian, is it okay when my gut feel reacts against God's word and then sort of I suppose assuming my answer on that a little how do we get rid of that difference how do we bring our gut feel into line with God's word that's what we're thinking about tonight okay let's start with the question why does our gut feel so often react against 
what God's word tells us on so many of these issues. Oh, hold on, I'll go back. There we go. Well, it's because we need to understand, and this is the first point, and perhaps the most important point from tonight. What we need to understand is our gut feel is not neutral. Every person in the world likes to think they are the one totally fair-minded person. They are the one person with no predispositions either way. They are the person who can make a rational, 100% unbiased decision. God's word tells us that is wrong. Our gut feel... Oh, we're singing a song. I've gone too long. Our gut feel is not neutral. Our conscience is not some independent umpire who is totally free from all, all possible biases and who is always pointing us in the right direction. See, the Bible tells us that our conscience, our gut feel, what we often call our heart, is actually naturally sinful. It's naturally not a good guide because it's out of step with God. So look at what God says about the human heart in Jeremiah chapter 17. God says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? You see, we know this is true from our experience because you know how your heart works. When you've got your mind, when you want something, it's amazing how your heart will rationalise why it's okay for you to have it. That's what our heart does. It's deceptive because it's biased against God. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul summarising the human condition, he gets to chapter 3, verse 10, and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks good. He's not saying human beings can't do good things. He's saying our natural tendency is not to seek after God. Our natural tendency is to seek what is best for us, or at least what we think is best for us. Our natural tendency is to hide from God, to run away from God. No one naturally seeks after God and tries to live his way. We are all marred by sin. That is the reality of the human condition. Too often, people, even Christian people, think that we're neutral. And we can just go either way. We can decide whether we go towards God or away from God. But no, the Bible says our natural inclination, our gut feel, is not to seek after God and not to seek his way. It's not to look towards God. It's actually to ignore God and live for ourselves. Which is why, when you come to the Gospels, so you come to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as Jesus starts preaching the Gospel... You never find Jesus going out and saying, good people, come and listen to my interesting new philosophy and add it to your already wonderful view of the world. Do you find that anywhere in the Gospels? Does Jesus ever speak in that way? Jesus doesn't come and say, good people, let me teach you how to be even better. That's not what Jesus says. What did Jesus come and say? Look at Mark chapter 1. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe in the good news. To repent means to turn around 180 degrees from the way you used to face. It means to change your mind and decide to go in the opposite direction. Stop following your heart, stop following your desires and turn around and start following God and his heart and his desires. So repent, Jesus says, and then believe the good news. That is, replace what you used to believe, where you believed you were the centre of the world and everything revolved around you. Replace that with this good news I'm sharing with you. 
Come and trust in me, Jesus says. And another way of saying that is, Jesus invites us to turn away from our old world view, our old way of viewing reality, and come and view the world his way. Trusting him to tell us the truth. Let Jesus drive our decision making. See, the very essence of repenting and believing in Jesus is actually to stop following your own heart. The gospel of follow your heart is the opposite of the Christian message. The very essence of what Jesus says is stop following your heart and come and follow me instead. See, when you become a Christian, you don't just add some new thoughts. Jesus doesn't take you from 95% right to now you can be 100% right. No, when we become a Christian, we say, actually, my old way has been wrong. My old, I've misunderstood everything. But now I want Jesus to set my agenda. I want God to direct what is right and wrong for me. And when we do that, that repentance flows out in all sorts of little decisions we make in our everyday life. And so because I follow Jesus, I turn away from swearing and I turn towards speaking words of encouragement because I want to build people up, not tear them down. And when I, because I follow Jesus, I turn away from drunkenness and I turn towards self-control. When I, when I, because I follow Jesus, I turn away from sexual immorality and now I strive for sexual purity. I'll turn away from selfishness and greed and now I'll turn towards generosity. That is repentance, but that's only like the individual little treatment of the symptoms of repentance. The actual heart of repentance is bringing our whole mind and our whole heart, bringing our gut feel into line with God's view of the world. It's replacing our old worldview with God's worldview. So that when we look at ourselves, we see ourselves as God sees us. When we look at our world, we see it as God sees it. When we look at one another, we see one another as God sees them. And when we think about issues, we think about them how God thinks about them. The thing is, though, that doesn't happen just sort of like that in an instant. It takes time. See, when you become a Christian, it's the biggest decision you make in your life. Nothing else is as important as that. When you become a Christian, you make the fundamental change. You say, I am repenting. I am now going to trust Jesus. But you don't suddenly understand everything God's way. That is a process that happens over time. I sometimes get really annoyed with older Christians for all sorts of reasons. But, but I sometimes get really annoyed with older Christians because they see someone become a Christian and then they go, oh, listen, listen to the way that person talks. They can't be a Christian. Or, or they, don't under, they don't understand anything. They can't be a Christian if they don't understand this finer point of doctrine in our gospel team. That's like saying to a toddler, why can't you ride a bike? It's like saying to Harley, why, why can't you ride? What's wrong with you? Come on. It takes time to, for our mind to come into line with Jesus's. It takes time for Je- to see how Jesus wants us to act, think in every situation. In fact, that is what Christian maturity is. Christian maturity is over time having our mind, having our heart, and then our actions brought into line with God's mind and God's heart. So our worldview more and more matches God's view. That's what it is to grow as a Christian. And so hopefully over time, our gut feel becomes more and more in tune with the Bible. And it grates on us less and less. That is Christian maturity. 
So to summarise so far, in case you've uh, switched off on a Sunday evening, first thing, if you're taking notes, be wary of your gut feel. And that's the most important thing. It's not positive. It's not even neutral. Second thing, that is why we repent when we become a Christian. We turn away from our old way of thinking and bring our thinking into line with God's. Thirdly, while we make that fundamental change when we become a Christian, we decisively repent. We turn to Christ. We say, he is my Lord. The realignment of our mind with God's mind will take a lifetime. But I want to turn now to the next point. And this is, uh, if you take out your outline, this is the second column of your outline. And that is, how do we work at that realignment? How do we bring our gut increasingly into line with God's view of the world? And the best place to look for that answer is in the book of Romans and Romans chapter 12 in particular. The book of Romans is the great explanation of the gospel. Every Christian should read Romans every year, I think, because what it does is it shows us the human problem. The problem is that we're sinners who deserve God's judgment, but then it shows us the wonderful grace of God, how he sent his son to die for us, to take the punishment we deserve. And then it explains how we're saved by taking a hold of that gift, by trusting in Jesus. But having said all that, the apostle Paul gets to Romans 12 and he talks about what does that mean for living your life now? What does that mean for the, 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 the individual decisions, the nitty gritty of life now? How do you live as someone who trusts in Jesus? And this is what he says, look up there on the screen. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. That's actually a wonderful, simple concept. He says, now, if you want to live to please God as someone who knows the forgiveness of Jesus, through trusting in Jesus, then you don't please God by going to the temple and giving a sacrifice of a goat. You don't please God in of itself by coming to church and singing a few songs. Your worship is by giving your whole life to Jesus. Your worship is by living your whole life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to please Jesus. And, and so you don't just worship for two hours on a Sunday in church. We worship in the way we conduct ourselves in our workplace. We worship in the way we treat the people in our family. We worship in the way we live 24-7. And how do we do that? Well, that's verse 2, the second sentence there. He says, do not be conformed to this age, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's the key phrase. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. You see, do not be conformed to this age. That's the negative side. Don't let this world set your worldview. Don't let this world make you decide, tell you what's right or wrong. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what do you need if you want to live to please God? We, what do you need if you want to discern God's will in all matters? We need our minds renewed. That's what we need. Or as I put it before, we need our mind and our heart brought into line with God's mind and God's heart. Now, as I said before, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at some specific issues that are the hot topics of today. And we're going to think about what the Bible says and what the world says and why they're different. But that's for, for next week and the week after. Today, for just this last part of the talk... I want to focus on the tools God has given us for that renewal to happen. How can you have your mind renewed? Because 
you see, in the end, I can't talk about every issue you're going to face. And I don't want you thinking, I need Phil to tell me how to live. I'm not a priest. That, that's not my job. It's not my job to tell you, you know, oh, but Phil says. That's not my job. My job is to equip you so that you know how to make wise decisions. You know how to live in line with God's will. You, you can't rely on your minister to give a sermon on every topic you're going to face in, the, in life. It's that old saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you feed him for life. See, what I want is I want you to be taught. I want you to be taught to fish. So how do we take responsibility for the renewing of our mind? You'll see five points there on your outline. I'm going to go through them very briefly. The first is, it is not something we do by ourselves. One of the great gifts, God, in fact, we prayed for it for Harley, didn't we? One of the great gifts God gives us when you become a Christian is his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, helping renew our minds. See, that's why it's so important that we should be praying that God would give us a mind like his. I think the book of James is a great example of that. James says in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks this ability to think after God, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. See, God, is not, God doesn't enjoy the fact that we're out of sync with him. God wants you to think like him. So if you ask him to help you, he will answer. It's one of the great promises of scripture. Second point is God has already told us how he will answer that prayer the majority of the time. And that is the scriptures are the way God answers that prayer. God's word is what renews our mind. You know these verses well, but look at them anyway. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The answer is really simple. What will equip you to make God-aligned decisions? God's Word will equip you to make God-aligned decisions. But we have to understand how God's Word does that. Sometimes when I'm in a hotel room, I like just checking, is there a Gideon's Bible there? And increasingly, they're not there. They used to be every hotel room had a Gideon's Bible so that if a person was on their own in a hotel in a strange city, they could read the Bible. And one of the things the Gideon's Bibles have, if you can find one today, is you open it up and they have a verse for every topic. And so you can sit there and you, it's always, the first one is, are you feeling lonely? That's because you're in a hotel room on a Saturday night reading the Gideon's Bible. So are you feeling lonely? And it'll take you to a verse in the Psalms. Or are you feeling uh, angry? Here's a verse about anger. Are, are you feeling tempted? Here's a verse about temptation. And that is wonderful and that is helpful, but that is not the main way the Bible equips us. The Bible is not like this little textbook that has a topical list and you say, ah, oh, I'm struggling with this, what's the verse I need? That's how I'll know how to live God's way. It sometimes can do that. So if you're grumbling and complaining, you'll just find a verse that says, be thankful, and you go, oh, thanks God, there you go, good, there's my answer. You, you know, I'm thinking of getting drunk, oh, here's the verse that says, don't get drunk, there you go. I'm, I'm thinking of telling a lie, oh, don't lie, oh, okay. The, the Bible can work that way but far more important is the work it does of dismantling your mind and then rebuilding it to think God's way that's why you don't just turn to God's word when you've got an issue you spend your life studying it 
You spend your life meditating on it, reshaping your mind so that our gut feel comes into line with God's. That's why I chose that Old Testament reading from Psalm 119 before. Grab your Bibles. I've done enough work for you on the screen. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 119. And I could have gone to any verse in Psalm 119 because it's all about God's word. But turn to uh, that one we read, verse 97 to 104. I'll give you a moment to get there. Now what this is, I think Natani said this before the reading actually, this is a picture of a person who loves God's word. And and you see the words it uses? See the picture it gives of a person who doesn't think how the world thinks? It's because they love God's word. It's because, verse 97, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation, although that's not meditation in the Eastern religion sense of emptying your mind. It means that's what I think about all the time. I'm always thinking about God's word. And when he says there, I I, I don't fall for the traps of people who think differently. When he says, I have more insight than all my teachers, it's not because he's saying, I'm the smartest guy in town. It's because your decrees are my meditation. Do you see the picture? It's God's word. It's meditating on God's word every day that reshapes his mind so that he thinks God's way. That's why godly Christians have always devoted themselves to the daily reading of scripture. To find just some time in the day to read God's word, to counterbalance in some way the rubbish that flows into our mind from every other source. That's why godly Christians have devoted themselves to meeting with other Christians to study the Bible. Sometimes people say to me, I don't want to join a gospel team, that's what we call our Bible secrets, a gospel team this year, Phil, because I think I know my Bible pretty well and I, and I think you have no idea. You don't join it because you haven't understood point X yet. You're there so that your mind is being filled with the Word of God and if you know it well already, you'll know that and you'll want to fill it more. Third point, and that is, of course, a healthy diet is not just about what you put into yourself, it's also about what you don't put into yourself. This is my great problem in the area of food diet. I have no problem eating healthy food. I just don't like limiting myself to healthy food. That, that's my great problem. I, I'm happy to eat a banana as long as there's some chips as well. You, you know, that sort of idea. That is most modern Christian spiritual problem. So you go back to Romans chapter 12, it's not just renew your mind with God's word, it's also do not let your mind be shaped by this world. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in a positive way in Philippians chapter 4. I think this is just such a wonderful verse, look with me. It says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Wouldn't that verse just be a great guide for you to think, is this show worth watching? Is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this commendable? Is there any moral excellence in this? See, often the reason our gut feel reacts against God's word is because every TV show we watch, every radio station we listen to, Every website we visit, every billboard we drive past is subtly preaching a worldly gospel. And I'm not just talking about pornography and R-rated films here. In, in some ways, that's the easy stuff. You know that's wrong. Just avoid it. 
I'm not wanting to belittle those who struggle in that area, but, but in a sense, it's fairly obvious that's wrong. Just avoid it. Uh, it's the normalising of greed in the television shows we watch at 7.30 every night. It, it's the normalising of immorality in the television shows we watch at 7.30 every night. It's, it's the normalising of selfishness every time we scroll down our social media feed. That is far more insidious. That, that reshaping of our mind of what we actually think is noble and beautiful. So that we think it's about how a person looks, that that's what beauty is. See, that is the insidious way our world reshapes our mind. Now, it's so hard to deal with this, isn't it? And the answer is not imposing laws. Sadly, many Christians have said, so therefore don't watch TV or never go to the movies. Or, or that sort of thing. Now, we're in this world. And I think, although I should say, there are many shows or movies. Just don't go and see them. Don't watch them. Turn them off. That's fairly obvious. But it's a matter of discernment. Am I limiting the garbage that is going into my head? And as I watch television, as I look at social, am I critiquing it? from a Christian point of view or am I just letting it wash over me and just subtly shift my thinking into the ways of the world fourth point of course besides his word the other wonderful tool God has given us for shaping our worldview is the gift of one another that's the great gift God has given us God says this to us in Hebrews chapter 10 look there he says and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching all day of all week our minds are being shaped by the world so how important is it that we prioritize the time where we meet with our christian brothers and sisters so that they can encourage us and we can encourage them so we can point them to god's way of thinking and they can point us to god's way of thinking We know this is true from our own experience, of course, positive and negative. When you've grown as a Christian, the times in your life where you've really grown as a Christian, you know that it's because you've been devoted to the fellowship. You've been meeting with other Christians. You can't get enough of meeting with other people and reading the Bible. But we also know when Christians stop meeting regularly with their brothers and sisters in Christ, it's amazing how their views on things change. They don't make a conscious decision, I'm going to stop thinking God's way on that. What happens is just by not meeting together with their brothers and sisters, the world's view becomes normal. It's if the only input you get is from the world, then is it any surprise that you think just like the world? Do not let that happen to you. Make Christian fellowship an absolute priority. God's word and God's people are his two wonderful gifts to us. Fifthly, and I think related to that, is making sure that our key influences share our faith. That's what God's talking about, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, when he says this. You know the verse well. Uh, it gets taught in youth group all the time, I'm sure. Uh, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, when we take that verse and we apply it straight away to romantic relationships, we say, don't go out with a non-believer and definitely don't marry someone who doesn't share your faith how could you have the most important connection with another human being be one where you don't share the thing that is most important to you that's just obvious isn't it but i think it's it's, it's much wider than that i say don't just limit it to that it is that but it's wider than that 
You see, if Jesus and the gospel is fundamental to everything we believe and every decision we make, then we want the people who guide us and influence us to be people who are driven by Jesus and the gospel. We need the friends who we turn to for advice to share our worldview. If you see a counsellor, wonderful thing to do, but make sure it's a Christian counsellor so that they're actually giving you advice from a Christian worldview. See, we don't withdraw from the world as Christians. We want to be a witness to the world as Christians. But we don't take our advice and our counsel from the world. We take that from God's word and older, more mature Christian brothers and sisters. There's five things we need to be doing to bring our minds into line with God's view of things. Uh, And that is the sign of growing as a Christian. Uh, As we grow in maturity, the world shapes us less and less and our gut feel comes more and more into line with God's word. And that is our prayer and that is our aim and that's what we hope for. But sadly, I'm going to let you down at this point. There is a reality that this side of glory, the two will never be 100% aligned. You'll never get rid of that gut feel that nags at you and says God's word is wrong. You see, the reality of the Christian life is there will always be a clash between the spirit of God at work in us and our old sinful heart, our old worldview and our new worldview. And that clash won't be resolved until Christ returns. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5, last passage for tonight. It says, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. He's not talking about conflict out there in the world. He's talking about the conflict in his own heart. Even the Apostle Paul, you know, the person you think the greatest, godliest person other than Jesus, even the Apostle Paul said, I often do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do because I know it's right. God's word tells me but my heart says go the other way. Even the Apostle Paul had that tension. It is the reality of the Christian life. Now, I share that as we finish for two reasons. The first reason is, I hope that is liberating. So I want to say to you, do not despair when your gut feel reacts against God's word. Sometimes I talk to Christians, young Christians in particular, and they say, say to me, I don't think I'm a Christian because I'm really struggling with that. I go, no, the fact that you're struggling with that is the sign you are a Christian. That's the sign the Holy Spirit is at work and you're, you're grappling with it and, and you're, that tension is the normal Christian life. Sadly, often when people are having that struggle, it throws them into doubt and then they do the worst possible thing. They think, oh, I don't want to be a, a hypocrite. I'm uncomfortable with what the Bible says. I won't go to church anymore. I'll withdraw from Christian fellowship. I'll stop reading the Bible. If you don't mind me being frank, what a stupid thing to do. What a foolish thing to do. That's saying... I'm struggling with it, so I'll just let this world be the only input I get. And gee, I wonder what decision I'll come to. Of course, if you only listen to the world, that is where you'll end up. The right thing to do is to recognise the tension, keep wrestling with the tension, but do that with your Christian brothers and sisters encouraging you and with the word of God open as you grapple with it. So I hope the normality of that struggle liberates you Just because you struggle doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But while it liberates you, please don't let it make you complacent. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he's not saying that with a smile in his voice. He hates it. He wants to resolve it. He wants his gut feel to come into line with the Word of God. 
don't just accept that we struggle to accept God's view and say, yeah, I'm a Christian who just struggles with that one. Work at it. Recognize that it's my mind that's wrong, not God's word. It's my heart that's wrong, not God's word. And when our gut feel does question what God's word is saying, especially when we're becoming increasingly uncomfortable, you know, you know, sometimes as a Christian, you used to be comfortable, but now you're getting less and less comfortable with what God's saying. That is meant to ring an alarm bell for you. See, that is saying, I must be letting the world shape me too much. Maybe I've got to read the scriptures more. Maybe I'm listening too much to my non-Christian friends and family rather than listening to Christian brothers and sisters. Are the people I'm listening to people who share my faith? Or am I spending so much time in the world that God's word is becoming a dim, distant memory? See, despite what I said before about not following your gut feel and not listening to your conscience, I want you to listen to your gut feel. And I want you to listen to your conscience, just not in the way Jiminy Cricket told you to. Don't let your conscience be your guide, but let it be an alarm bell to you. If your conscience is increasingly moving away from God's word, that is an alarm bell that says, gee, I better get myself to church more regularly. Gee, I better get reading my Bible more. Gee, I better pray more for God to help me with this. Let it be a warning to you. A warning to get our mind into line with God's word. Rather than do that thing, sadly, that Christians have often done, which is just try and make God's word fit with my mind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly and wonderfully in the Scriptures. We thank you most of all that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. And we know that despite our sin, we find forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him. But now as people who know Jesus, we long to live to please you. So please help us get on with that task of seeing our minds renewed by your word and by your spirit. And we pray that you will increasingly bring our mind and our heart and our gut feel into line with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.